Well, I'm excited. Today is uh, summertime, right? I mean, it is definitely the beginning of summer, in case you were wondering uh, when you walked outside this morning. You probably realized, holy moly, it is summer. I, I had the, um, the good fortune last week. Melissa and I got to go on a little trip to San Francisco. Never been there before. Beautiful, beautiful city. And the weather, it's ridiculous. It's just so unfair. It's so unfair. <laughs> They have no idea, right? I mean, we go through blood, sweat, and tears, and that's like just to go get the mail, right? And you get back, you just like are crawling back in the house. It, it was truly uh, ri- ridiculous uh, how beautiful and, and cool it was there, even in June. But it was a really nice trip. I thank you guys for letting us escape for a few days. Uh, we missed y'all, um, and everything went good. When we got, the only thing is when we got home, uh, we drove up to our house, and uh, there were some kids playing on my lawn. <laughs> I got to tell you, you know, I didn't yell at them because, you know, I don't like to yell. But uh, I went up to them and I said, you know, guys, you know what? I- I've been reading a book. And I found that the health of my grass is inversely related to how many feet are on the grass. And so that's, it seemed to... If you weren't here last week, or if you haven't heard the podcast, you're thinking, what is he talking about? Is he having a stroke right there on stage? Right. Big props to Mr. John Burns for the awesome message last week. Thank you, sir. Good stuff. Even if you did make fun of me a little bit, that's okay. But it's, it's summertime. <clears throat> summertime, my voice is changing. It's puberty number two. It's okay. But I'm excited because that means we're starting a brand new series. We're starting our summer long series this morning called The Laws of Love. And we are going to be taking a fresh look. We're going to be unpacking an ancient set of writings famously known as the Ten Commandments. In the ancient Hebrew, this list was known as the Asareth Hadabarim. Everybody say, no, I'm kidding. Asareth Hadabarim. That literally means 10 words. The Ten Words, or Ten Proclamations. They don't, they, in the Bible, they don't call it the Ten Commandments. In the Greek, they called it the Decalogue, which is Greek for Ten Words, Decalogos. So, when we say the Ten Commandments, you know, what do you think of? A lot, some of you might be thinking of, like, Sunday school. Kind of takes you back, you know, children's church. We think, like, Ten Commandments, that's sort of like children's church type stuff, as if God came down the mountain, you know, to just talk to little kids, you know. He was actually talking to grown-ups, too. Some of us think of, like, really old-fashioned rules, you know, the Ten Commandments. Nowadays, you know, when you talk about Ten Commandments, if you hear anything about it on TV, it usually has to do with some kind of culture war going on between, you know, special interest groups. Somebody's trying to take them down from some public building or something like that, you know. So the Ten Commandments hold this kind of weird place in, in Western society. You ask many Christians, especially evangelical, you know, modern evangelical Christians, about the Ten Commandments. If you, if you ask, you know, the Ten Commandments something that we have to follow today. A lot of Christians would say, no, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. It really doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but at the same time, if the ACLU tries to take a plaque off the courthouse wall, we get really excited, right? No, you can't take those down. They're the pillar of society, you know, and this kind of thing. We get really upset. Um, suddenly they matter. And, and, and consequently, what the world thinks about the Ten Commandments is kind of funny. It's usually some kind of warped view of what the Ten Commandments actually are and what their original intent 
was. Some people think about the Ten Commandments, they think of some kind of list, uh, some kind of behavioral, like a moral code, list of rules, rules given by some kind of fire-breathing God that you had to follow if you want to stay on his good side. Uh, you, you mentioned the Ten Commandments. A lot of folks instantly think of the uh, thou shalt nots. Uh, most of us, if we, you know, if I asked you, you know, you could, you could, most of us can name a few of them. Even people who don't go to church or anything can usually name a, name a few of them. Um, and even come up with some that aren't there. Uh, some religious folks, you know, really are into the Ten Commandments and use them as kind of a weapon to sort of beat other, other people over the head with. Uh, and some people, when you say the Ten Commandments, they simply think of this guy. <laughs> Charlton Heston. Who, for, for generations, a couple of generations at least, that is the face of Moses. But this, this summer, we're going to talk about... We're going to take a look at what the Ten Commandments are really about, what, what they're really about, collectively why they were given, what they're about, but also how each one of them individually really beautifully paints this picture of a loving God who has something to say to us today. And his love for us uh, it shows through these commandments and how he desires us to express that love back to him and to other people. We're going to work through what these ancient statements have to do with us today. What do they matter? Do they actually inform the way we live? Or is there something maybe even going on, you know, deeper than we can imagine? So <laughs> um, this is going to, this, this fact right here is going to be fundamental for us in, in, in this series. Understand this. We have to understand that the, the commands are ultimately about relationship. The commandments are ultimately about relationship. And so uh, that's fundamental. They're, they were not given as a way to earn God's love. They were not given as a way of earning his love, or, uh, but, but rather a way of informing people of God's love and informing people how to live that love out in a growing relationship with God, with other people. Um, See, this is fundamental. The, the, the Bible is not a, a, not a list of rules. The Bible is not a list of rules. We have, to, we have to get this. The Bible is a love story. I want us to really understand this. The Bible is a love story. It is this narrative. The Bible is a narrative of a God, a creator, rescuing his people. That is what the Bible is. It's, it's his rescue plan for humanity. And fundamental to being a Christian is understanding that everything in this story, everything in this Bible, everything points to Jesus. Absolutely everything points to Jesus. Everything. As Christians, we, we keep Jesus at the center of everything that we do. Everything that we study points to Jesus. That, if it doesn't point to Jesus, we're not interested, right? And it turns out it all points to Jesus, it's, it's a fascinating thing. That's the beautiful secret for us in this room is that it's all about Jesus. Whether we're studying Matthew, the actual, you know, uh, life of Jesus, or we're studying Exodus, it's all pointing to Jesus. This is super relevant for us uh, when we're studying these commandments because in the Gospels, 1,500 years later after the commandments, Jesus declares that there's two commandments that are the most important when they asked him, what are the most important commandments? And he said, love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said this. Now, I used to think that when Jesus was talking and he, he gave these two commandments, what he was doing was uh, he was saying that he was kind of wiping away the original 10. That's the way I kind of looked at it. He was giving us two new commandments, wiping away the original 10, and so we just don't have to follow those 10 commandments anymore. But what's actually happening here is really much more fascinating than that. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God, 
what he is doing is summarizing the first five commandments. That is the, what the first five are all about. And then when he, and, and he summarizes the last five commandments when he says, love your neighbor, right? And so when we delve into the 10 commandments, we're just fleshing out the, the, the main commandments that Jesus gave us. So the, the purpose of the commandments is love. It's love. Love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. Now, this was, this was kind of really brought home um, kind of brutally last week. We live in, we live in a world that is, uh, it, the modern world, we live in the midst of pluralistic societies, right, with lots of different philosophies, lots of different religions all around us. Um, and believe it or not, it is possible for people who have different philosophies, who disagree with each other, to live peacefully around each other. It is possible. Uh, but what we see today in the horrific conflict taking place overseas in the Middle East, in Syria, and Iraq, and Afghanistan, and what we just saw last week in the horrible massacre in Orlando, we see something very, very important. And, and I was thinking about this last, last Sunday, in fact, Sunday morning, and I was uh, at the place we were staying. I was up on the little rooftop. I had a little cup of coffee, and I was reading. I was praying, and I'm looking over this beautiful city, San Francisco, there. And and then and I took out my phone, and I see the headline that it what had just happened hours earlier. Uh, all these these people shot, murdered, and I and it it brought it home so much because I was thinking about this message that we're going to be talking about today. That when you remove Love from any philosophy, from any religion, when you remove love from any conversation or debate or politics, when you remove the element of love, you have something inhuman. You're left with something that's incompatible, unsustainable with humanity when you remove love from the equation. Um, it, you become less human, less like God. It's, there's nothing holy about shooting a bunch of people that you don't agree with, right? And, and it's not even, we can't even say, well, it's really animalistic. I mean, that's an insult to animals, right? What it is, is demonic. It's pure demonic. It's not human. It's not natural or animalistic or survival of the fist or anything. It's demonic. And that's what you get. When you subtract love from any conversation or debate or philosophy or list of rules or list of laws, you subtract love, what you're left with is demonic, period. So the Ten Commandments, we, we, this is important for us to understand. When God, when the children of Israel, they come out of Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai, and God gives them the Ten Commandments. They're not given in order to make people more religious. There's plenty of people being religious in horrible ways in the world. They're not given even to, to help people earn their way into heaven. There's people trying to earn their way into heaven in horrific ways around the world. That is not why the Ten Commandments are given. They're given as a sign of God's love for his people, as we're going to see. And they're given as a model for how we exhibit that love to God and to our neighbors. All right? 
So it's, the Ten Commandments are very relevant today is, is my big point. They're very relevant for today. Now, the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus uh, chapter 20. You can start to go there if you want, if you have your Bibles today. They're in Exodus chapter 20. But it's in, actually in chapter 19 that we get, we learn why God gives the commandments to us. And the why is important. You always want to start with the why. In chapter 19, God establishes this uh, relationship with us. Is that the one? There it is. He establishes this relationship um, and, and he, he, pulls, he pulls us close, and he, he protects us. God says, I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. He says that we're God's chosen people, God's treasured possession. God establishes this loving relationship with us. Notice, before he gives the law. This is before Israel has done anything to deserve anything, right? He's just delivered them. He said, you are my treasured possession. Relationship in chapter 19 is the context for the law in chapter 20. That's really important for us to get, number one. Relationship is the context. We're given these laws of love because we are God's treasured possession. We're not given them so that we can earn our way and become his treasured possession. He gives them to us because we are his possession. The law reflects our value to God. The law tells us how to live in relationship with God, how to live in relationship with his neighbors. It's, it's about relationship. I know that's really hard for you to, to believe that I would, I would find that, but, you know, because I, I never talk about relationship, right? It's about relationship, right? Relationship precedes law. We have to get this. This is the natural order of things. Relationship precedes law. Uh, if you've ever been married, more than likely, the relationship preceded, came before the law of marriage, right? There was some relationship that, that started to happen there that was incubating and developing, and, and then you got, you got married. Uh, our relationship, uh, our relationship as a church, the relationship that we have with you and with each other and with God, that precedes way, that comes way before our constitution and bylaws and all that that we have written down somewhere. The relationship comes first. And we would not need the Ten Commandments if we did not first have a relationship with God and the rest of the body of Christ. So God kicks things off finally when we get to chapter 20. He says this um, in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, look here. So our relationship with God is what sets us free. This is important for us to get. It is our relationship with God that sets us free. It's not the laws that set us free. They, he set them free before they ever had any laws. Our relationship with God is what sets us free. Freedom is the gift from God, okay? God brings us out of slavery, you and me. He brings us out so that we can love and worship God, and he frees us to, to worship him, and also he frees us to love and care for our neighbor, that's a big deal, right? Because we're no longer slaves. We're no longer the victim. We get to help other people. We get to love on other people. The slave doesn't get to help anybody, right? We are now free to love others. So the commandments are not about limiting our, our freedom. These commandments are, are actually shown, are given to us to show how free people live. How free people live. That's important. Remember at this point in their history, what is Israel? What, what are the Israelites? They, they have just come out of, they have just been rescued from slavery. 400 years of slavery. 400 years, that's all they've known. Anybody alive 
at that point. That's all they've known. That's all their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. That's all they've known. Imagine 400 years ago. That would be the 1600s or so. Imagine for, for up till today, we've only known slavery. What if that's all we've known for 400 years? God brings them out. 400 years of being treated as subhuman, not quite human. They, so what do they have? They have slave mentality. They have poor self-esteem, right? No self-worth. No ability to govern themselves. And he rescues them. He, he brings them out. So he doesn't just rescue them and let them die in the wilderness because they don't know what, how to take care of themselves. God is teaching this nation of people not just how to live. He's teaching them how to be human again. How to be human. He's giving them back their humanity. He's showing them how free people live. This is very important to what he is doing here. See, he's showing them, hey guys, Hey, people who are free don't murder each other, right? People who are free don't steal from each other. You don't, you don't steal from each other anymore. You don't have to scrounge for anything you can get, you know, take care of one and only. Uh, you, don't, you don't covet the property of your neighbors anymore. Free people worship God. Uh, guess what? Free people take a Sabbath because we're not slaves to our work. Free people get to rest, Right? And being free means we treat each other with love and respect and dignity. We, we today, we are most free when, when we are living the life that God originally designed for us. That's when we're free. And that's the secret to true freedom, to jo- true joy, true fulfillment. God is not out to stifle your freedom. He's not out to stifle your expression, you know, of who you are or anything like that. Jesus said he came to set the captive, what? free. He came to set the captive. He didn't come to take you out of your prison of sin and just put you in a religious prison. He set you free, right? He set us free. What did he set us free from? The human condition, sin, hopelessness, uh, no, no uh, purpose. He set us free from our addictions, from jealousy, from the need to be hurt, anger, the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free, and it's the only thing that'll set us free. And the commandments themselves, so they're, they're, they're not a condition of, of our relationship with God. They are confirmation of our relationship with God. The commandments are confirmation of our relationship with God. His love for us, his acceptance of us. And he, he gave these commandments to the Jewish people because he chose them. He chose them, and he chose to love them and make them his people. He didn't give them to them so that they could get in good with him. He gave them, he gave the commandments because they were in good with him. I love the way Andy Stanley puts this. He says it really well. He says, uh, he says, remember the rules never establish your relationship with your heavenly father. Rules are not how you get in good with God. If God honors you with a rule, it is because you are in. You are in. If he honors you with a rule. Let me ask, has anybody here ever been parent of a teenager? Anybody ever parent a teenager? All right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I just recently, like in the last several weeks, literally became parent of a teenager. And um, it's very different. I, you know, I always imagine that being parent of a teenager is kind of like being parent of a, your little bitty kid. They're just bigger and a little older and more self-sufficient. It's not that way at all, right? They become 13, and it's like they go into this cocoon, 
and they're this sweet little thing, and they go into this cocoon, and when they come out, you're like expecting this butterfly, and it's like a Nazgul coming out, you know, just like <laughs> screaming. Like, what are you? What happened when you woke up this morning? Um, it's a different human being, you know, suddenly. And what, what we learn really fast is God knows what every parent knows, especially if you're a parent of a teenager, and that is that rules without a relationship always results in rebellion. Rules without a relationship results in rebellion. Uh, that's, how, uh, that's how America became a country. You know, if you go back and, and kind of study how it happened in history, there was this revolt because of something called taxation without representation, right? And so, uh, in other words, rules from the king of England, they gave, he gave us some rules uh, without a relationship. We didn't have a relationship with the king of England. So it's human nature. Rules without a relationship breeds rebellion. If you impose rules on me, and we don't share any kind of common passion, common interest, I don't know you, I haven't learned to trust you, everything within me wants to resist those rules. Is anybody like that? Everything in me just goes, right? That's why relationship with God always precedes the rules. His relationship always comes first. He always seeks relationship with us. He pursues relationship with us long before he honors us with a rule. Now, the, the reason many of us today have resisted God, we, you might be sitting here today and you're sort of like, I don't know about God. You know, you resist God or you resist church. One of the reasons, the big reason, is that we've got that flipped upside down. And we get the impression that we have to keep the rules in order to have the relationship. We gotta keep the rules in order to have the relationship. And God says, first, I want us to have a relationship. This is what he said to me when I wasn't serving him. I, I, I was so angry and I had so many questions. And he said, I know, I, I know you got a lot of questions. We're, we're gonna, we'll figure all that out. Let's have a relationship first. Let's get to know each other first. That just blew me away. Really? You know, you'll, you'll start a relationship now when I'm into all this stuff? Yeah, that, that blew me away. God says, first, I wanna have a relationship. I wanna establish you as mine. I want to be your God, and I want you to be my true love. So, now, in, in the time we have left, I want to unpack something that's really cool. To me, it's really cool. Um, about this first command. We're going to look at this first command that God gives us in verse 3. Exodus 20, uh, verse 3. To do that, uh, we have to go back a little bit before the Ten Commandments so I can set this up. In Exodus 6, this is, this is really cool. Exodus, by the way, if, if you're kind of new to the Bible, Exodus is part of the first five books of the Bible. It's part of what they call the Torah. And to the Jewish follower of God, the Torah is very special. It's not just a, a, you know, a bunch of books they came up with that have a lot of good ideas in them. To the Jewish follower of God, every single word in Torah is special is like abounding with meaning. Every single word, it, it means something. Every word is priceless and packed with meaning. And so I want to show you a couple of words that will help us understand the, the 10 words, the 10 commandments. Uh, we'll start in Exodus chapter 6. God is speaking to his people here, and he says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Then in verse 7, he says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now, verse 7 here has this fascinating little word. It's a fascinating word. 
it says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. He literally says right there, if you, if you, if you read it literally, it says, I will take you to me. I will take you to me. In Hebrew, this word is laka. Everybody say laka. Laka. Okay, we're learn a little Hebrew today. Laka. This word means to marry. It's the word to marry. They wouldn't say, I'm going to marry you. I'm going to wed you. They would say, Laka. And so God says, I'm going to take you to be my people. So anybody reading this back in, in Jesus' day, they would have known instantly. They'd be reading this and go, oh, 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 hey, hey, this is, this is wedding language, right? Cool. God is taking us, and we're coming together, not like some kind of master-slave arrangement here. He's, he's doing a different thing than anything that's ever been done in the earth. This is like a wedding ceremony going on at Mount Sinai, Right? Very unusual. Now, in a Jewish wedding, this is the first stage in the wedding. This laka, the groom would declare laka to the, the bride. He, you know, he, that's where the groom would say, baby, I'm going to take you in my arms. I'm going to make all our dreams come true. I take you. I'm taking you to myself. This is right. He, but he would say it in Hebrew, but that's the way he would say it. If he was, <laughs> it was, you know, more street. But laka is where the groom, he looks at the bride, and he declares that he is taking her to be his own. Now, check this out. In, in chapter 19, verse 5, he says, Now, if you obey me and fully and keep my commandments, then out of all the nations of the earth, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This, uh, this word, possession, I'm going to be, you'll be my treasured possession, is the word segula. Segula. Everybody say segula. Segula, treasured possession. This is the next part of the wedding. The groom, he's, he's declared to the bride, I'm going to take you as mine. And then he speaks to her all tenderly and romantically, right? And he publicly declares that out of all the earth, he has chosen her above all else. Segula is this moment where the groom, he reminds the bride that, that he could have pursued anybody but he only wants her. He could have pursued anybody, but he only wants her. So what's happening here between God and Israel is this beautiful thing, right? Is he bringing them here out into the desert and laying down a bunch of rules because he's the boss? No, no. He's, he has delivered them from bondage. He's stolen them away from their prison, right? He's declared his love. And, and before they have done anything to deserve it, they haven't deserved this yet. They haven't, like, earned. He said, I'm taking you as my own. Laka, I'm taking you as my own. And I'm making you my treasured possession, Segula. See, if we miss this, this beautiful picture of, of a wedding between a bride and a groom going on here, we miss the essential nature of God's relationship with his people, you know, we're called in Revelation, we're called his bride, right? Yeah, so I'm not making this up. Look at ver a few verses down. In verse 10, he says, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Once again, now words matter. Remember, words matter to the Jewish Listener, they're hearing this, and immediately this idea of washing would immediately make their radar go off. And they would go, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. Because, see, before any Jewish wedding, the bride would perform a ritual bathing called 
a mikvah. Mikvah. As a symbol of sort of washing away all of her past in preparation for the groom. In fact, Jews would do this any time they were, uh, uh, wanted to mark a special moment in their life. When they were moving from one thing, and they were putting it in the past and moving to another, moving toward a new thing, experiencing some kind of spiritual rever- rebirth, or leaving behind an old way of life, committing themselves to a new way of life, they would submerge themselves in a ritual bath. Get this, they would even describe it using language like rebirth, reborn, right? A thousand years later, Christians would adopt this practice as a sign of coming to Christ and leaving it all behind and starting a new life with him when we call it baptism. So what does God tell Israel to do at Mount Sinai? Go, go take a bath, baby, because we're going to get married. Right? It's your wedding day. This is what God is, is saying. There's a whole bunch of other interesting, kind of obscure little code words and signs if we had, like, hours and hours to go through it, that, that this is a wedding event happening on Mount Sinai. But we don't have time to go into all of them. But I do want to just bring out one more thing. It's the last point I want to make on this. To me, it's the most important one. One of the most important parts of a Jewish wedding is called uh, the ketubah. Ketubah. There it is. Um, and the ketubah is kind of like the wedding vows. Um, but often it happened beforehand. It happened before the wedding. Uh, the, it was the agreement. And in those days, it was sometimes given by the father's of, of the kids getting married. And so the fathers would get together and like the father of the bride would be like, okay, here's the expectations she brings into the wedding, into this marriage, right? The groom's got to have a job. We want a job. Uh, we, we want date night every Friday night. And we want new shoes once a month, right? That's, that's what we're coming in here with. You know, and then the, the groom's father, he, they would come back with something, you know. She has to laugh at my jokes, however many times I say it, you know, or whatever it is, you know. Um, but, but it was very important. What are the expectations? They would talk about what are the expectations in this wedding, in this marriage? What does she expect from him? How are they going to live together in peace and harmony? It's very important. And, and I, I, I kind of think you should all, we should all do this before we get married. This is a good idea. Before you jump into a, a wedding, you should sit down, have a little ketubah, you know, and what, what, are you, what do you think this is going to be? You know, and I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. I think that would save a lot of frustration later on um, after having counseled some people having issues. Uh, yeah, you, you guys should have did a ketubah before you all got married and talked about what exactly are we both getting into. But the ketubahs, when they say to each other, if this relationship is going to work, how, how will we make this work so the relationship can be everything it's supposed to be? So when God finally sits Moses down and he starts declaring the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, what are the first words he says? In Exodus 20, verse 1, he says, and God spoke all these words. Remember, the Ten Commandments is God's way of showing his people how to live as free people, how to live in covenant relationship with their Father in heaven. They're not how to make it to heaven. The Ten Commandments are not that. They are how to live on earth. That's very important. It's not how to make it to heaven. It's how to live on earth. How does God begin the ketubah in verse 2? He starts by declaring, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, he's, com- he's proven his commitment to them by freeing them from Egypt. And once that relationship has been established, only then, then and only then, does God begin laying out the first instructions for how they were to live as God's people. And we get to verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. Or some translation might say, no other gods beside me. 
1,500 years later, Jesus would say it this way. He would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want a relationship with the Father, you've got to have a relationship with me because we're one. God wants to be front and center in our life. He's not going to be marginalized. He's not going to be pushed off to the side. He's not going to share your life with some other gods, right? Once we understand this, we begin to see that God didn't give the law to make people good. He gave the law to make people free, to make us free, to help us make sense of our purpose here on the earth. And rule number one with God, when we get to the rule number one, is simply this. You have to trust me. You have to let me be your God and no one else. I don't want to be one of your gods. I, I want to be your only God. Now, this was unheard of at the time. In this day and age, in 3500 BC, this was unheard of. Why would God say this? Because these people came out of an Egyptian culture of many gods, right? Many gods. This was the culture that they've lived in for 400 years. And what God is saying is this. Instead of looking at multiple deities for your needs, right? Multiple gods that don't look at the God of commerce or the God of love or relationship or the God of fertility or the God of war if you've got to go to battle or something like that. You know, some guy you've got to, like that. I want to be the one source for meeting all of your needs. God's telling them, I want to be the source. I want to be the source. If you've got crop issues, you come to me, right? If you've got war issues, you come to me. Marriage issues, I'm the God of love. If you got money issues, I'm the God of money. You come to me. If you got fear issues, if your dog is sick, you come to me, is what he's saying, right? Revolutionary thing he's telling these people, right? Because they're used to, which, which God do I have to go to? You have to look it up, right, for this issue. You come to me. I want to be your one and only, because newsflash, I am the one and only, right? I want you to recognize me for who I am. This is what God is telling them. And so God is telling them, why does this come first? Why is this the first commandment? Because everything rests on this. God says, if you settle this one issue, if you really settle this issue, that I am the God, the one and only, I'm your man, you shall have no other gods before me. Everything else is going to take care of itself, right? Everything else is going to fall into place a lot more simply. Now notice, what is he asking his, this new bride of his to do? What is he asking? He's asking her to choose, right? You got to choose. He's saying, you can't have other lovers. You've got to choose me. Because if you have other lovers, this isn't going to work, right? How many of us tell God that we're in? Yeah, God, we're in. I want you moving in my life, do some miracles. But we're keeping other lovers in our life. We, we want the peace and the joy and the fullness and the goosebumps of a good worship service. We want that. Uh, we know only God can give that stuff. Yeah, we want that stuff. We want the security of having his name, right, at hand, the name of Jesus. Yeah, I want that. But we have other things that we sort of love more. Because we can't give them up. And God says, that's not going to work, and you're going to break my heart. Right? What are other lovers? The other lovers, th those things that look so attractive, even though we belong to God. Ambition, might be our ambition. Career, 
our free time. How much, ask yourself, how much more jealously do we guard our own free time than we guard our time with God? Right? Amen. Talking to myself too. Yeah. Who we guard that free time? Uh, other people. Are other people our other lovers? Are they more important to us than God? What obsession are you putting in front of God? Like, God, I, I could give up a whole lot of stuff, but please don't ever ask me to give this up, right? What obsession do we put in front of God? The problem is that it's so common, in fact, to turn things into, to make idols out of God's good gifts. Most of these things that, that are other lovers, most of them are not like horrible, evil things, right? They're like things that should be okay. Other people, money, free time, this sort of thing. But we've turned them into an idol. They're a gift from the Lord, and, and we turn these things, such as family, work, money, sex, any number of, of other gifts that God has given us. And John Calvin once wrote, he said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts, we, we produce idols like Shipley's makes donuts, right? It's just an assembly line. First thing in the morning, they start, right? Idol after idol flows down that conveyor belt of our life. And as we grow in our love for God, as we grow in our love, we, we have to learn to struggle against these idols that want to come between us and God, right? And, and we have to be very careful. Don't get prideful. Don't be thinking, I'm, I'm a Christian for a long time. I'm in good. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to keep the struggle up anymore. No, that, that's, that's something you've got to be diligent about to the last breath you take on this earth, right? We do. We have to be diligent about that. Anything can, can turn into an idol that comes between us and God. Do you have other lovers? Because until you choose God or the other thing, you'll always be conflicted. You'll always have that going on inside. And when we don't choose God, believe me, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. Because he cares for you more infinitely than you can imagine. He really does. It, I, I'm boggled by that. I, sometimes it's hard. For, I have to like ask God to really help me understand and believe that he really cares for me that much. And he does, whether, you, whether we get it or not. He cares for us so much. And the creation story, if you go back, and the whole thing is, is this reflection of God's longing for his people, his longing for people to love and to love him back. The Bible is the story of a God in search of people, right? You and I were created for a love relationship with God. It's why we're made. And, and so throughout the rest of Hebrew scriptures, when you read it, it's sad. We, we see God referring back to these original vows over and over. In the book of Hosea, he says to the people, you cheated on me. He uses really interesting language there. It's not master-slave language. He says, you cheated on me. The whole book is this, if, if you have time, go back and read it. It's interesting. The, this picture of a God who's like beating his breast uh, over people that have been unfaithful to him. They've chosen other lovers. He even uses that word. In Malachi, he cries out, you were the bride of my youth. You could just hear this heartbreak. They've broken his heart. So, you know, what that, you know what that also says to me? He gets you. Have you ever been cheated on? God gets it. He gets you. He knows 
God would say, I know how it feels. Have you ever been dumped? God knows that pain. God, he desires a soulmate to give himself to because he is love. And we talked about that a month ago or so. He is love, and what he does is give. What that love does is give. He wants to give himself. The first thing God tells us after he rescues us is simply, for this relationship to work, you can't have other lovers. So let me close today uh, with, with this. Keep this in mind. Heartache, unfortunately, is central to God's experience with people. It is, and yet he still loves. He doesn't stop. He still loves. Just like you and I, we go into this relationship. We go, we, we might, we go into a relationship knowing that there might be pain there. Uh, it may hurt, but we still do it. We still love people. We make ourselves vulnerable. That's central to being human. We make ourselves vulnerable, whether it's in a marriage or in a small group, we're being vulnerable in there, or sharing the gospel with a neighbor, we lay it on the line, don't we? You're making yourself vulnerable. You're laying it out there. And we risk it all on love. We risk it all on love. We still say yes to the possibility of love. Even if you have been hurt, even if you have been rejected, you still say yes to the possibility of love in your future. Because to give it up, to give up is, is to die a little inside. It's actually to become less like God to give up on that love, on that possibility of love. You're made in the image of God. Every single one of you, image bearer of God. And he keeps speaking to you. He keeps stepping towards you. He keeps revealing himself to you in all kinds of beautiful ways. Knowing full well you may reject him. You might. You might say no. You might run away. You might say yes, but then take other lovers. He still keeps pursuing you, keeps loving you, because he is love, and he's going to keep pursuing you till the end. Jesus, through Jesus, that, that is, he's our redeemer. Just like God redeemed Israel from slavery and oppression of Egypt, he has freed us from the slavery and the oppression of sin. He has initiated a relationship with us when we, had done, when we did nothing to deserve it. He initiated that relationship. Amen. Amen? He chose us to be his people when you did nothing to deserve it. You don't have to earn that. He chose you to be his people. He chose you. Before you ever asked anything from him, he chose you. So what are your other lovers that you're keeping on the side. Ask yourself that. And then ask yourself, do those things love me back? Do those things really love me back? Do any of those false lovers we pursue, do any of them love us back unconditionally? Because God loves us unconditionally. He loves us fiercely, and he will love you forever. Can you say that about anything else? No. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your unconditional love. You said that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can separate us from your love. We only have to open ourselves up and accept you. We thank you, Father, that you have given us this opportunity 
that you have chosen us, Lord God, chosen us to, to be your people, to be your, your bride, Lord. I thank you, Lord God, that if there are people here today and that choice is before them, I thank you, Lord God, that they make the right choice, that they choose love, they choose joy, unconditional acceptance. We thank you, Father, for that, Lord. We thank you, Father, for all the, the things that you have in store for us this week. I thank you, Lord God. You've got the miracles in mind. You know the ways to, to get out of every problem that is in front of us, Lord God, because you are our God. We only need to run to you. We don't have to run to anything else. You are our source. You are our healer. You are our forgiveness. You are our joy. We thank you, Father God, for being our everything. We praise you and honor you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been fun. And uh, next week, we'll tackle number two. Then the, I think the week after that, we've got Ivan Tate's gonna be in the house. That's gonna be a lot of fun. All right. So I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down forward right now. If you're here today and you need anything in the world for someone to pray in faith with you about, ask these guys to pray with you because it's not the same after we pray. Amen. Good things happen. Change happens. And if you're here today and you've never asked Jesus into your heart, you want to make that step. You're ready to put aside everything and make him the center of your life. Come up and talk to these guys. They would love to pray with you and help you take that next incredible step in your life. Amen. Amen. Okay, you guys have a wonderful week, and we will see you later.